Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. On the episode, it's me, Sam, and Clint. Brittany's not with us for this episode. Our schedule just didn't align for this week, but Brittany is always here in spirit. And if you have not seen her as one of the newest political contributors on MSNBC, check her out there. And then I'm sitting down to talk to George Gascon, who's running to be the next DA in L.A. County. And the election is today, so make sure you vote. Now, the message for this week is uh, something I've probably said before, but it's been on my heart. This idea that even the best players have coaches is that what I realize is that the only way that we get better is by getting feedback. And I know some people who are really successful who have essentially built these circles around them where there's no feedback. Like there's no pushes, there's no challenges, there's no sort of nobody expanding the way that they think. And even the best players have coaches that feedback is necessary for ever to grow into our best selves. What's up, y'all? It's the news. This is not Brittany Packnick Cunningham, but it is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Uh, he did it. He did it. I, oh, wait. I, no, I did it. Oh, snap. Oh, my God. No, keep that in. <laughs> keep that in. Keep that in. After two keep years, I've been. Oh, gosh. You can't unring the bell, Clint. Wow. <laughs> I can't believe it happened. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Duray at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. Uh, Brittany is not with us right now. Uh, but she had a stellar week on MSNBC. And the last clip I saw of her was her talking about what it meant that Tom Steyer dropped out of the race and how much money he spent. He spent like over $200 million running for president. Tom has a good platform, but that money could have been spent on a whole range of other things. He spent all that money promoting himself. He built like a huge list. And I'm curious to see like what happens to that list now that he's built with all the money. Is it going, is he going to lend that to the party, to the nominee? Or is he just sort of going to sell it? Like, like I don't understand what all of it's for, but hopefully he'll lead on the next phase of this in supporting the nominee. Yeah, I mean, we kind of gave our take on Tom Steyer last week when we did the roundtable. It was kind of always for me, like, to what end? Like, what are you doing it for? I guess you're more famous now and, like, a little bit less rich. But this seemed like an inevitability. But maybe nothing's inevitable in politics. So he's out. He got the, the coveted juvenile endorsement. So... There's that. For those of you who haven't seen the clip, Tom's final act was that he was backing that thing up to the famous Juvenile song, which, you know, is close to my heart because I grew up in New Orleans and Juvenile used to be like hanging out at Lakeside Mall. And now Juvenile was was singing his famous song. that has got to be like 20 years old now with Tom Steyer and his wife really, you know, turning up on stage. So glad they had a good time, I guess, but uh, would have been happier if they'd used those hundreds of millions of dollars to do basically anything else. I was actually pretty surprised that Pete dropped out. Uh, It'll be interesting to see where his voters go, because when I looked at the last article, they noted that there wasn't a lot of crossover between Pete supporters and Sanders supporters. So will they go to Biden? Will they go to Warren? Like, who will they go to? But Pete will have a long career ahead of him. I met Pete originally when he ran for DNC chair, and I was surprised by a small-town mayor running for chair of the party at that point. And who could have imagined that there'd be a gay man kissing his partner on a national stage as a presidential candidate? Like, I hadn't imagined that. Uh, So shout out to getting this far. Looking forward to seeing what he does next. And if you listen to this on time, and not like me who listens to my podcast several weeks late. I'm trying to get better. Then today is Super Tuesday. There is a chance that you are in one of those Super Tuesday states. Get out there, vote, make sure your people vote. It's about to be wild. I don't know what's going to happen. We'll find out. Last time, last time I said, we'll find out tonight. 
was Iowa, and we definitely did not find out that same night. So I'm not going to say it this time. <laughs> but we'll find out at some point, I hope. And it's about to be wild. So my news is about San Francisco, where the newly elected district attorney, Chesa Budin, just announced a new policy that is aimed at addressing mass incarceration. So his policy is focused on two areas. First, he is announcing that he's severely restricting, not entirely banning, but almost entirely banning the use of sentencing enhancements like gang enhancements in prosecutions. So this is a huge deal, particularly in California. I actually hadn't fully appreciated the extent to which sentencing enhancements affected and were driving mass incarceration within that state. So one in every four people who's incarcerated in California is incarcerated under some version of a sentencing enhancement. Some of these are gang enhancements, which 92% of prisoners in California who are serving a sentence under a gang enhancement are Black or Latinx. And gang enhancements, by the way, just mean that if the police believe or the prosecutors believe or attribute a gang to you. So they say you're in a gang. Oftentimes, as we've seen, particularly in, in LA, uh, those labels are often misapplied or applied in incredibly biased ways. Um, that can result in a higher sentence than you otherwise would get. And so in San Francisco, the district attorney has said he's not going to seek uh, those enhanced sentences for the vast majority of cases. He did say that there might be exceptions where he applies it. And then the second thing that he is announcing is an end to prosecuting folks based on pretext stops. So a pretext stop is a stop by the police where they end up searching you and investigating things that have nothing to do with why they stopped you. So you can imagine the police stop you for speeding or they say you're speeding and then they try to investigate you as if you are engaged in some other form of criminal activity that has nothing to do with you know, speeding or a traffic violation. Uh, it turns out that this is also a huge issue in California as well as across the country. And we know this because under the Racial and Identity Profiling Act, uh, which was passed a couple of years ago, police departments in California are now required to report data on every stop that they make. And the eight largest agencies in California have now published some of that data. And what it shows is that folks are being stopped and searched at higher rates, especially if you are black or brown, and that a lot of these searches are what they call consent searches, which means that the police actually report no justification at all for searching the person other than asking that person if they can search them and the person allegedly giving consent. And as we know, a lot of people, if the police say, you know, can I search you? They don't know that they can say no, or even if they know technically that they can say no, legally being allowed to say no, and actually being allowed to say no in the presence of a police officer are often two different things. And so what we find in California is a gross racial disparity when it comes to who is being searched in a consent search. Uh, so in San Francisco, for example, according to the data that they reported for the first six months of 2018, black people were 1.6 times more likely to be subject to a consent search after being stopped, as well as people with disabilities being three times more likely to be subject to a consent search following a stop. So District Attorney Chester Borden is no longer going to be prosecuting the vast majority of these cases. And that really serves as a precedent for other DAs across the country to play an even larger role in combating mass incarceration. So I actually didn't know about gang enhancements as a phenomenon. So I really appreciate you bringing this here. And what's interesting, you know, over the last year or two years or so, as I've been doing this dissertation work, which to remind folks is about folks sentenced to juvenile life without parole, 
most of the men that I spoke with had been, quote, gang involved or adjacent to what someone would have perceived as being gang involved in the sense that they were a part of like a, a group of young black children who would hang out with one another and spend time with one another and move about alongside one another and were treated by the police and by the state and by their schools as gangs, even though that, you know, gang is like an amorphous often racist term. And so there's not really a cohesive definition for it. But part of what I am reminded of, and I I just want to add this to the framework for why it's important that the DA is doing this, is that gangs are presented to us as these things that are bad kids joining other bad kids to do bad things. And we really don't take into account the extent to which a lot of these children are surrounding themselves with other children and other people and oftentimes older individuals because they're scared, right? Like you grow up in a community that is saturated with violence and poverty. Your parents are incarcerated or struggling with addiction or working several jobs so that they can pay the rent, put food on the table. And you are in a position where you have to find a community of people you can trust, a community of people who will protect you, a community of people who will have your back in a place, in a landscape, in an ecosystem that's incredibly precarious. Oftentimes, or sometimes that'll mean you put yourself in positions that means you might make decisions that aren't good. And sometimes you might do things that, you know, it can be easy for some of us to look at from the outside and say, like, I wouldn't have never done that. But I guess my point is that, like, people join um, doing air quotes gangs or groups of other people when they're young because they're scared and they need protection and they need a community that's going to provide them love and protection and to mitigate the fear they have of walking through their neighborhood by themselves. And so, and then it creates this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in which they are finding protection with these groups of other young people. And then the police treat large groups of young people as inherently criminal. And then they have some sort of interaction with the criminal legal system. And then because they are perceived as being part of a gang that they initially joined only because they were scared for their lives and wanted some sort of protection, some sort of family, some sort of community, then they're, they experience this gang enhancement in which their sentences are extended. I mean, the, there, there are a million ways that we talk about all the time are about how the cycle of incarceration and the cycle of the criminal legal system manifest itself. And this is, this is another way in a way that didn't even fully connect to me until you brought this up, Sam, the idea that someone would make a decision that you were in a gang, regardless of the context that might've led you into that situation. And then as a result of that, make your prison stay longer than it otherwise would have been is just, I'm very glad that the DA San Francisco is, is doing this because that's so absurd and runs in the face of everything that we know about what it means to create a system that is effective. And the reason that this matters in California specifically is that in California, there's a database called CalGang that's run by the state. And there are about 88,000 people in the database. Now, this all came to head in L.A. because in 2019, there was a mother who got a letter saying that her son had been identified as a gang member. And she was confident that her son was misidentified. And she went to a police station and reported it to a supervisor. The supervisor went and reviewed the body cam footage and looked at other information around how this kid got put in the gang database. And then the department removed her son from the gang database. Now, that officer got disciplined. But that led to a review where there are currently over 20 officers in the LAPD who have been disciplined or put to desk duty or some other form of discipline because they were just making up information to put people in the gang database. 
So the LAPD is investigating. The attorney general of California is investigating. And this matters because these databases, I know we talk about the police a lot, but remember, it is almost impossible to experience incarceration without the police as some part of the pipeline. And to get in the gang database, the police are like the gateway to do it. The public has no access to Cal Gang. So the only way to sort of know you're in it is for somebody in law enforcement essentially to tell you that you're in it. And this database, you can be in it by the clothes you're wearing, the neighborhood you live in, or any law enforcement officer just sort of saying that you're in it. So in the area, LAPD places more people in the database than any other law enforcement agency in the state. About 20% of all the records come from LA. So it's good that in San Francisco, that they are acknowledging that this database and the methodology around it is loose at best. The other thing that I wanted to know is that once these reforms were announced by the new DA in San Francisco, Sam, I don't know if you saw the statement that the San Francisco Police Association released. Did you see it? No, I haven't seen it yet. So let me read it. The San Francisco Police Association, mind you, you already explained what the actual changes are. Here's what the statement is. In his short tenure, Chesa Budin has demonstrated that he is a clear and present danger to the law-abiding residents, businesses, and visitors of San Francisco. Get pulled over and have an illegal handgun or AR-15? No problem. Budin will draw out your case. Have 10 pounds of meth all in small plastic bags ready for sale? No problem. Budin will draw out your case too. It's unconscionable that Budin would let someone with an illegal gun go free only to allow them the opportunity to arm themselves again. Chesa Budin is emboldening criminals, and we are all going to pay a steep price for his absurd policies. That is ridiculous. You know, I think that what we find over and over again is that the police unions just come out against all the things that even the data, the research show don't make any sense. You have to wonder, why do you have such an investment in making sure people are in jail? When like the data even shows it's not about safety, it doesn't lead to you know, less deaths, less crime. Like, what is your investment in putting people in jail? Like, that's the question. And when I read that statement, like, that's all I could think about. I mean, to that point about the police unions, it is fascinating as a union that is presumably committed to protecting their members and the officers. So many of the policies that they're actually pushing for expand incarceration, expand police contact with folks, expand the permissiveness of use of force policies that allow police to use force. And all of these things, all of these situations are also situations where officers themselves have a higher likelihood of being injured than if they weren't in those situations. So in many ways, the police unions are actively supporting policies that endanger their own members, just as they endanger the broader community, especially communities that are disproportionately impacted by those policies and by that policing. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. 
Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So for my news, last week, the state of Virginia passed House Bill 35, which makes people who were convicted of committing crimes before the age of 18 eligible for parole after 20 years in prison. Essentially, it is abolishing life without parole for people who were charged as juveniles. And this takes effect on July 1st. So this is a good thing. This provides relief to potentially hundreds of people. But there is a major question that looms over how much of an impact this reform might have, because it will only make people eligible to go in front of a parole board, but it does not guarantee that the person will get paroled. So if you get past 20 years, you can go up to a parole board, uh, but that parole board can decide whether or not they're going to release you. And given the recent history of Virginia's board, they pretty much have like quasi-systematically denied the applications for all of the parole opportunities that have been presented to them, the vast majority. This signals the importance of strengthening the parole board process alongside the reforms that the Virginia House and State Senate, as well as the governor, have now passed. And in doing so, it creates a larger opportunity for these hundreds of folks who are now eligible to actually have a chance to go home. Virginia now becomes the 23rd state plus D.C. to end life without parole for minors. Oregon passed a similar bill last summer, and there are a bunch of proposals on the table in other states as well. I should say also that HB 35, while it's good, it is also less expansive of a change than we've seen in some other states and some other states that have passed laws in the last several years that have made minors eligible for parole after 15 years, whereas Virginia does 20 years. 
When Illinois established the new parole rules for children, it made it so that people up to age 21 could apply. If you were 21 or younger when the crime was ostensibly committed, as compared to Virginia, which says it doesn't count if you were a day over 18. And so given what we know about all of the neuroscience that we've talked about before, how your brain isn't fully developed until your mid-20s, and that was the premise upon which the Supreme Court made mandatory life without parole unconstitutional in 2012 in Miller v. Alabama, and then made that ruling retroactive in 2016 in Montgomery v. Louisiana. We know this to be true. And so what is important is that I think a lot of advocates and activists are are pushing these states to raise the age from 18, which again is just an arbitrary number that people have decided constitutes adulthood. And it's a number that moves up and down, you know, depending on if you're talking about voting or if you're talking about alcohol, if you're talking about buying a gun, if you're talking about cigarettes. So I think it's important to remind ourselves that this is an arbitrary number and an arbitrary cutoff. And like, is it fair for someone who is 17 and 364 days to have an opportunity to go up for parole? And then someone who is a day over 18, you know, a day older, two days older than this other person to not The bill currently will affect 722 people who are currently incarcerated. This is really important in Virginia because Virginia also just has a really punitive history. That's one of the most punitive states in the country. Uh, It pretty much eliminated parole for everyone in 1995 as a part of a punitive wave that cut off the ability to obtain early release and considerably increased the length of time people served in prison. And as a result of that decision, the prison population more than doubled And the share of people above age 50 went to 20% of the population from 4.5%. Because if you don't have the opportunity to get released, then you're going to end up having a bunch of old people in prison, which ends up costing more money because these people need medical care. You know, and not that our decisions around incarceration should be singularly predicated on money, but it is an important thing to note. So uh, some good news. It could be better news. But for the families of the 720 folks that this impacts, I hope they'll have the opportunity to get up in front of a parole board. And, and importantly, I hope that parole board will take seriously what it means to provide people with a second chance to go back into the community for something that they did as children. When I first heard about this, it sounded pretty great. You know, it sounded like it was fairly progressive. But now that, you know, I'm sort of reading more about the context that this is the 23rd state, Virginia is the 23rd state to end sentences of life without the possibility of parole for minors, that it does it in a way that is less progressive than other states. So, you know, as you mentioned, it only applies to folks up to the age of 17 and 364 days and not up to the age of 21, like Illinois. You know, it's just not as expansive as what we've seen in some other states. And then, you know, you add to that the performance of the parole board. And I think this is a reminder of why parole boards are so such a critical piece of the system of mass incarceration that often gets ignored but needs to be paid attention to. So according to a Capital News Service analysis of Virginia's parole board, 94% of parole applications since 2014 have been denied, 94%. So while it sounds good, right, and I think a lot of people upon reading this news are like, wow, this is great. You know, in reality, what this does is it opens up 720 folks who are currently incarcerated and some number of folks in the future to a process that they have a 94% probability of being denied within, right? And the rate of denial 
now is actually above 90% for all age groups. So even for folks who are younger, they're still likely to get denied. And so this begs the question, who's on those parole boards? Why are they continually making these decisions to deny folks, many of whom were minors, were extremely young, who were, according to the science, had brains that were not yet fully matured when they may have committed a crime and in many cases may have been wrongly accused, right? Um, So again, like this is a situation where it's not far enough. It is incremental progress, but there's so much more that Virginia could be doing um, now that it has, you know, a Democratic trifecta, House, Senate, and governorship. I hope that they will sort of revisit this and go a lot further as other states have begun to do to actually make a substantial difference in the lives of folks who are currently incarcerated and especially for folks who are incarcerated at such a young age. You know, the thing too, and Clint sort of touched on this, is that the context for uh, Virginia is really important is that as a part of truth and sentencing in 1995, they essentially banned parole. So the way it works in Virginia right now is that you have to serve 85% of your sentence before you can be released. And this bill that Clint's talking about, it essentially is one of the first ways that they are trying to essentially unban parole. And when we look at parole boards around the country, just the makeup is not as bad as some other places. So there are two people who sort of come from some sort of law enforcement background, one person who comes from like a victim advocate background, and then two people who come from essentially like an advocacy, like a criminal justice uh, reform background. But they haven't really had a whole lot of cases that could even come before them because they only had jurisdiction essentially to people who had been sentenced before the 1995 law had passed. This is the undoing of that. And it's interesting because the Democrats are sort of riding a fine line because what the Republicans are saying is that to repeal the end of parole would be to scale back and to make communities unsafe. But the question remains, like, what does 100 years in prison do for anybody? What does 80 years in prison? And like, if we think that rehabilitation is possible, then at the very least, at the very least, people should be able to go before a board to make that case. That the end of parole means that people don't even get a chance to show that they have done any type of work on themselves. And we know in Virginia, just like in almost every place where incarceration is, is that there's an overrepresentation of poor people and black and brown people. So if you live in Virginia, it's important that you support your legislators who are pushing this stuff, who are making sure that like we are actually changing the way the structure works and not being sort of scared by these groups who are saying that like rehabilitation is impossible. Uh, so my news is about this town. I hadn't heard about this story at all, but this is about a majority black city that was essentially blocked from voting for black public officials. Pleasant Grove, Alabama, the way that the voting system was set up is that it allow white people to win every single city council seat. And the NAACP Legal Defense Fund intervened and they got it. So that was not going to happen anymore. So Pleasant Grove had been using an at-large voting system to allow the white residents to vote in mass for their candidates of choice and to win every seat. So the way that it works is that The seats on the city council were not allotted by district. Instead, the whole city voted for all the members. And because it was a majority white community, if more white people voted, then they would just necessarily choose who became the city council. And Pleasant Grove is sort of interesting. It's right outside of Birmingham. It used to be all white. In 85, a federal court intervened and blocked the city's attempt to annex some white areas 
because the court held that it was an astonishing hostility to the presence and rights of Black Americans. The Supreme Court upheld that decision later. But here we are, two decades after that decision, and now Black people make up 60% of the population and about 53% of registered voters. But even still, the way that the system is set up with the voter turnout of the white population historically is that they have still been able to choose all the people on the council until the NAACP Legal Defense Fund intervened and filed a lawsuit. And as a part of the settlement, every single person in Pleasant Grove will get five votes to allocate however they want amongst the candidates. Candidates will no longer run for a specific seat in the council, and the top five vote-getters in the election will be the winners. And this was the compromise to make sure that Black people will actually have some sort of power. And this is the same thing that in 1988, in Shelton County in Alabama, they also switched to cumulative voting, which is what this is called, and they elected a Black person to office, and that candidate stayed in office for decades. But it had never occurred to me how having councilmanic districts actually is also a part of the justice equation, that allowing people to vote for people from their community is one of the only ways that we've been able to guarantee that there is like some sort of racial representation in electoral politics. So I want to bring this here. When we talk about voter suppression and gerrymandering and the role in which districts are drawn that can disenfranchise or dilute the power of Black voters. We often talk about it in the context of Congress and congressional representation. This article is a reminder that this is actually happening on every level of government and how deep this really goes, right? And, and I was first introduced to this at the local level when I went to Baton Rouge in Louisiana and learned that despite the fact that the city is about 55% Black and the broader parish, which is like the county, is about 47% Black and 44% White, the council, the local government, is majority White and has been majority White for as far back as it has existed, in part because they have drawn the lines of the districts in ways that pack a certain proportion of Black voters in each district so as to allow enough white voters to continually elect uh, white folks to office uh, and to dilute the Black vote just enough so that they will never have a majority on the, on the parish council. So that's like one way in which they've sort of gerrymandered the city uh, so that white people preserve a majority stake and majority power in a context where they're not the majority population. And I think that this example, again, in the South, is just a reminder that there are many different methodologies that are being used simultaneously in different cities and counties across, particularly across the South, but also outside of the South, to disenfranchise Black folks and that we need to be just as active at the local and state levels as we often are in pushing against gerrymandering at the federal level and in Congress. I just say that this is another one of the reasons that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is is just so so deeply important. And what a lot of people don't know is that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is a different organization than the NAACP. At one time, they were the same, where they were tied to one another, but they are actually different organizations and different entities. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, as many folks know, was founded in 1940 by Thurgood Marshall, who would go on to serve as the Supreme Court Justice. They are consistently doing the work on like a national level, but also as this brings our attention to like on a small scale, but recognizing that like in working on the granular level, they're actually doing this more universal work. And I'm just consistently impressed by Cheryl and Eiffel, by the attorneys who I meet who work for this organization. And they are among some of the most committed 
and most intelligent and most thoughtful people doing legal work today. And I think it represents the best of what the legal profession is or what it offers. And I'm just grateful that this organization exists and is doing this sort of work. Because I, I, as I read this article, you know, I don't know who else would be able to bring the combination of resources and expertise to this fight in a place like this. So shout out to them. Donate to that organization if you can. That's the news. George Gascon has been a police officer. He's been a DA in San Francisco. He has a long career in criminal justice in a host of areas. I was fascinated to have this conversation. Learned a lot. Election days today. Let's do it. George, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Hey, my pleasure. How are you doing, the ring? I'm good. I'm excited to have this conversation because, you know, the DA races across the country have been taking a lot of attention and people have started to understand this role. And I know you're running to be the next DA of L.A., but can you start with what brought you to the law at all? Like, how did you even get to thinking about a legal career as the way to make change? Yeah, so uh, I started, uh, you know, my journey was actually started as a high school dropout, a kid that grew up in a very poor uh, neighborhood in L.A. County, then went to the Army, and that sort of got me straightened up a little, and then I came out of the Army with the intention of being a teacher, wound up going into the police department, and as I grew up in the LAPD, becoming more concerned about what was happening in the criminal justice system, I, I rose through the ranks to be the number two. Uh, I became an attorney while I was in the police department, and I uh, started working on justice reform areas probably about 15, 18 years ago. When I uh, landed in Arizona uh, as a chief of police after a career in the LAPD, got involved in a very intense fight against the Maricopa County Sheriff, a guy named Joe Arpaio, uh, who was targeting uh, brown people uh, in his quest to uh, end, and I'm using his terms, uh, illegal immigration. He became sort of the sweetheart of the xenophobic movement in the country, encircling Arizona. Uh, and, you know, he, he liked to be referred as America's toughest sheriff at the time. Um, I was the chief of police of the second largest city in the county, uh, the the third largest police department in the state. And he was going into uh, the city that I was responsible for public safety, and he was doing immigration raids, which was causing tremendous problems for the community that I was responsible for protecting. And that led to some very intense uh, public fights, uh, opiate pieces and Actually, at one point, my providing police protection for people that were demonstrating in support of uh, our Latino community and our immigrant community to protect them from, uh, you know, the, the Maricopa County Sheriff Department and other forces of, of the anti-immigrant move. Uh, I wound up being in Congress to provide testimony against what was going on in Arizona, and as a result of that, I put intense pressure in the political family in Mesa, and I was asked to leave uh, as I was getting death threats and, and the political fight increased. Now Governor Newsom in California was then the mayor of San Francisco. He recruited me to be the chief of police there. And while I was in San Francisco, I uh, started working and assisted Kamala Harris, who was the uh, district attorney, and when she became the attorney general for the state, I, I was initially appointed and then run successfully twice. 
uh, for San Francisco District Attorney and was a district attorney for about eight and a half years there. During my time as a district attorney, I came in with a very clear focus, having worked both at the national and state level on criminal justice reform, uh, with uh, being able to show that you can have, uh, you can decarcerate and you can have reform and actually improve public safety. And we went about to prove that in San Francisco and did so successfully. Part of that process included uh, my working with other partners in what is now considered a progressive prosecutors movement. Uh, and often some people call me the godfather of progressive prosecutors because the term did not exist in 2011. In fact, we intentionally looked around the country trying to identify progressive prosecutors in major uh, urban centers, and, and that was a very difficult thing to do, uh, unlike now. So we became kind of the place where, you know, we incubated people that were running for progressive prosecutor positions around the country. Uh, we help other offices at the same time that I was very engaged in our own community safety and, and, and moving the, the progressive movement forward. Uh, I was engaged in uh, the reform of three strikes here in California, which made it so that the last strike, the one that would take you to prison forever, basically 25 years to life, needed to be violent and serious as opposed to what it was before. You know, people were going in for low-level theft. That was a felony. From there, I worked on Prop 47. I was the original uh, crafter of Prop 47, which later led to uh, bringing others on board, you know, which was the biggest criminal justice reform, certainly drug policy reform in the country back then, leading to the release of thousands of primarily African-American Latinos from prison that were in prison for the disparities between the way the law treated crack cocaine and treated other substances that were more widely used in the affluent uh, white communities uh, where drug use generally has little, if any, criminal consequences. And we were able to get the public to support this. It was a movement that has created an opportunity that we took about $350 million a year from the uh, prison system and put it back into community services to deal with mental health and substance abuse and other problems at the local level. Uh, we also engage in supporting Prop 64, which is the legalization of marijuana. But then after Prop 64 passed, I was the first DA that actually went out and, and did massive expungements and reclassification of marijuana convictions, which basically has kept so many people in, in minority communities from being able to get employment and housing and many other things because of the criminal record, and then worked uh, with Code for America to create an algorithm to automate the process and, and make it available to others. Uh, when no other DAs was actually taking the offer, I lobby in Sacramento to create a law, which now goes into effect July 1, that would mandate that all DAs actually do their own record expungement um, because we were not getting any volunteer compliance. We're seeing now some people moving forward, but, you know, frankly, Somewhat hollow, given that in another four or five months, they're going to have to do it anyway. I mean, nice that they, some people are going to get the relief a little earlier, but it wasn't because it was a volunteer compliance. It's just simply because they're facing either pressure from an election or because they're going to have to do it anyway by the middle of this year. Uh, we also worked uh, with Stanford Computational Lab to create a tool to mask race and all the proxies from race. Uh, from police reports that were coming in for consideration for prosecution so that we would uh, 
try to reduce the impact of implicit bias, at least at the filing stage in the district attorney's office from our work. We've engaged in trying to get rid of life without the possibility of parole for juveniles in the state. We did that before it actually passed a long time ago, you know. So we've, you know, just, and I keep saying we, by the way, because I really view myself as part of a movement and everything that I do has been the result of a lot of hard work from, you know, men and women, both uh, that work with me directly and others in the community that provided the support for this to occur. When I announced a little over a year ago that I was not going to run for a third term in San Francisco, many people here in the LA area and around the state called and said, would you consider running? Since I announced that I was coming back home uh, and uh, because I grew up here, LA is my home. My kids were born here. My family is all here. And while I had an incredible experience and a lot of good friends in San Francisco. Also, I have no siblings, and my mother is here alone and doing not very well. And I wanted to come here and be able to assist. And in that process, one thing led to the other, and you know, and here I'm running against the current DA here. Not a lot of people think about a former police officer being suddenly somebody who wants to change the system wholesale that doesn't sort of believe that incarceration is the answer. Can you talk about how you made that transition? Like sort of what influenced you to transition from somebody who was not only a police officer, but was a chief to now wanting to lead the reform effort on this end? Yeah. And it it was an evolution, by the way, it's not now, you know, this evolution happened years ago. I mean, I, I was a DA for almost nine years and from day one, you know, very aggressively engaged in decarceration and led to one of the lowest levels of incarceration in San Francisco in history, going from a full jail to a jail that was consistently had 30% plus vacancies and also having the lowest number of prison referrals of any county, both per capita and raw numbers. Uh, in fact, in 2016, uh, we had researchers who came into San Francisco and they said if every county did work, the way that San Francisco has been doing it in two years, we would end mass incarceration in this country. So it's not now. It's an evolution that started for me almost uh, 15, 18 years ago as I increasingly became convinced that uh, the levels of incarceration that we were engaging were no longer producing any public safety and to the contrary, that were making many communities unsafe and that we were targeting poor people, people of color uh, at disproportionate uh, rates, uh, and that was breaking down entire communities. And I saw, you know, an evolution of, you know, just going, seeing one and another and, you know, maybe a third generation of some people uh, being arrested and, uh, and, and also educating myself, you know, to the science of the impact of incarceration and brain development, uh, you know, the how it takes, you know, really into our, our mid-20s to have our brains fully developed. It was just really a, an evolution. I started working with the Justice Center at Council of State Government in the mid-2000s, uh, working in justice reinvestment. So, you know, it's really important that, you know, and I underline this because it's not like I just woke up yesterday and said, oh, I want to be a progressive DA in L.A., uh, this is a journey of uh, a good 15 years, and certainly as a district, as an elected district attorney for about nine years, leading the most massive criminal justice reform in this country and the largest state in this country. You know, Prop 47 was not a little feat. It was actually the first time in over three decades of a turnaround, you know, the war on drugs, and with very consistent 
consequences that, as I stated earlier, have led to about $350 million being put back into local budgets to deal with mental health and substance abuse. So, you know, I'm not a Johnny-come-lately to this process, but I, you know, I don't walk away from my past either because I am the result of my past. I, I learned both from my mistakes and the mistakes of others, as well as I learned from, you know, my own personal evolution in the criminal justice system. And whether you're talking about drug policy or the death penalty, you know, I was campaigning to abolish the death penalty in 2012. So when people say, oh, he just, you know, he was just uh, pro-death penalty, I said, well, you need to go back at least eight years. It's more than that, but at least eight years uh, where I was actually doing TV ads and walking, you know, debating people around the state to support the abolition of the death penalty. So it's not just, but it's certainly an evolution of a, of a lifelong commitment to community safety and, and coming to the conclusion and showing that you can actually create more safety for everyone by having a more just system that actually doesn't rely on incarceration as the only tool to provide community safety. Now, the police union in L.A. has donated a considerable amount of money opposing your election. Why would the police be against somebody who used to be a police officer? Well, you know, uh, because they really, uh, first of all, you know, I know they tell you that they're about public safety, but they really aren't. You know, it's a police union and certainly, uh, you know, very conservative union. They are really more concerned with protecting bad behavior and policing and, you know, frankly, staying connected to the past. They talk about public safety because, of course, if they were to tell the public, hey, what we're trying to do is protect police officers when they get involved in criminal behavior, and we have a DA that supports that wholesalely and uh, even going against the recommendations of a chief of police when a chief of police, on a very unusual manner, actually requested that an officer be prosecuted for killing an unarmed uh, African-American mentally ill man that, you know, video clearly show that this was excessive force. You know, they're trying to protect the status quo. And, and, you know, listen, I mean, I tell people that the earth was flat until it was proven that it was not, right? And and you still have people, actually, there's still a flat earth society. It's been debunked scientifically for centuries now. Criminal justice reform is the same thing. Some people are still attached to the concept that you can take the mentally ill and, and those that are substance uh, addicted and, and lock them up on a, on a concrete box and that that somehow is going to cure them or that you can, you know, beat up on the poor and the African-American and Latino community, and that somehow makes us safer, even though everything points in the other direction. And the only way that we can prove otherwise is by continuing to do the work. But, you know, they have put actually, uh, as of this morning, I, I saw in the LA Times about $2 million uh, against me. And, you know, they're, they're trying to protect uh, what they view as their self-interest and certainly not the one of public safety. And there's some people who sort of push on this idea that you just left San Francisco, you're coming to L.A. How do you help people understand the desire to, to be in L.A. at this moment when you could have stayed in San Francisco? Um, like, how do you help people understand that? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, first of all, I had no term limits. You know, San Francisco has no term limits. So I could have not only gotten reelected uh, for a third term, which, you know, I knew certainly all the numbers indicated that I would have. And, you know, uh, a lot of support and a lot of people that I really care for. But I grew up here. This is my home. I spent about 40 years of my life here in L.A. I was coming home. And then, you know, to add to this, I have a, a, a mother that is ailing. And, you know, my father passed away about six years ago. And I have no siblings. And uh, while my kids are here, they have their own life to live. 
and, and I was coming back and forth to L.A. now multiple times a month, and it was getting very draining on uh, on my wife and I, and, and my mother needed closer attention here. So I was, you know, I had uh, made a decision that I was going to come here, and it really was when I made that decision. I made it public, actually, because I wanted to give plenty of opportunity for people to run for my place. I thought it was too important of a role just to wait until the last minute. I mean, a lot of my supporters there say, well, you know, uh, why don't you wait until the last moment to announce that you're leaving? And, you know, some were hoping that I was not going to leave. And others say, you know, so you don't become a lame duck. And I said, like, neither am I going to become a lame duck. And, and I proved that. We continued to work really hard for an entire year after I announced that I was leaving. But what it did occur is that, you know, people that have worked with me in the past, both here in Southern California as well in Northern California around the country, say, hey, uh, we have this, this incredible problem in uh, L.A., county. You know, we have a county that incarcerates at rates higher than any other county in the state. I mean, 25% higher, you know, that uh, incarcerates the mentally ill indiscriminately and uh, substance abuse that has actually contributed to the homeless population of the county by, by criminalizing poverty and often prosecuting people and forcing them to lose their employment. Uh, that continues to do the death penalty, that continues to prosecute juveniles as adults and basically leading the country in mass incarceration and having violent crime go up by 30% of a period of time. And I think that people were really tired of that and they saw the opportunity to actually turn this around and, and they started to ask if I would consider running. And, you know, I'm not going to deny that I am very passionate about the work. I'm very passionate about providing public safety in a way that is thoughtful and it uh, reduces the footprint of the criminal justice system because I believe, deeply believe, that much of the money that is invested in law enforcement, prosecutions, and prisons today should go to mental health, should go to uh, education, other public services uh, that actually create a more lasting solution to community safety. Look, the reality is if you look, there are very few college graduates that go to prison for committing crimes other than perhaps white-collar crimes. So I'd rather see us spend more money ensuring that kids that grew up in neighborhoods like I did have an opportunity to go to college, they get the mentoring that they need, or they have an opportunity to get a good union job and, you know, learn a trade. Uh, that to go to prison, because I know that when we do that, every time that we get somebody good employment, uh, that means they get housing and they get, you know, they, they, they become deeply embedded in a community, not as someone that is in need of support, but actually someone that can support others. And when we do that, we actually create a safer community. I'm very passionate about that because I have seen it work and I have seen, I've been to other places where that has worked very well. And an opportunity to do that in my hometown and also, you know, a double whammer that my hometown happens to be the largest incarcerator in the country. It was just uh, a wonderful opportunity for me. Now, how do you explain to people, there are a lot of people who sort of conceptually agree with everything you said about criminal justice reform, who also believe that incarceration is really important to that, that there are cities like L.A. or places in L.A. where people think that violence is out of control that the idea that we would incarcerate less people might actually exacerbate that problem. What do you say to those people? I'm sure you must encounter people who believe along those lines. No, absolutely. Look, I mean, the first thing is, and this is why I think it's so critical that we have an honest conversation around crime, around science. If incarceration made us safer, L.A. County would be the safest county 
in the country, if not the world, given that we incarcerate more people than anybody else, not only in raw numbers, but per capita. But the reality is that in the last seven and a half years, violent crime in L.A. County has gone up by 30 percent. It has gone up in the city of L.A. by over 40 percent. So if you believe that incarceration makes us safer, then you have to then come to the conclusion that we have incarcerated so much more than everybody else that we should be safer. But the reality is that we're not. You know, counties like San Francisco that incarcerated at substantially lower rates, you know, one-fourth of the rate, are much safer. You know, we actually had reductions in violent crimes during the same period of time. Then, if you add to that, that we now know things that we did not know 20 or 30 years ago. We now, for instance, now that a young person's brain is not fully developed until they're somewhere in the mid-20s, and that early brushes with the law and early incarceration actually is going to make that person more likely to continue to reoffend in the future, as opposed to if you provide just opportunities to get support and get services away from the criminal justice system. If you also understand that the science today tells you, and this are, again, this is stuff that has been researched and, and passed scientific muster, that for every year of incarceration that we go through, you have between a 4 and a 7% increase in the likelihood that you're going to be reincarcerated. And when you put that in light of the fact that 95% of all the people that we incarcerate are coming back out, you have to start looking at this mess and saying, okay, incarceration doesn't make me safer because if it would, L.A. County would not have a 30% increase in violent crime. Uh, incarcerating young people doesn't actually work because they actually become more likely to reoffend in the future. For every year that I put somebody in prison, I'm increasing the likelihood that when they come out, and they will come out, that they're going to hurt somebody else and themselves. You start adding all those things, one on top of the other. And then, on the other hand, you look and you say, okay, when people that are mentally ill, actually when they get their, their service and they get their medication and they get housing, they become stable and they then become a productive member of society and one less likely to be facing criminal consequences. When young kids go to school and graduate, and they either go into a trade or they go into a profession in college, they become less likely to get engaged in crimes. When communities actually start building from within, they become healthier, and everybody has a a better way of life. The problem is that we often don't have an opportunity to have those deeper conversations because we all get stuck in our little corners, and we listen to the 10-second elevator pitch by a political pundit or piece in social media or misinformation or lies, which are becoming more prevalent in our society. My God, you know, right at the very top of the, the political structure in this country now, we have an administration that actually thrives on, on providing alternative information that, you know, actually alternative is, is a misnomer. It's really false information and selling it as if it were the truth. You know, the way that I go to those people is by, you know, trying to spend a little time and, and walking them through this journey and then challenge them to go out and read and, and to educate themselves and not, not just simply grabbing some blog from social media, but actually looking at some of the work that is out there, which is plentiful. Uh, by the way, we have UCI did a major study into Prop 47 that debunked the whole concept that Prop 47 had increased any crime. 
in San Francisco when we had a police basically slowdown, 81,000 car break-ins, 13 arrests. All of a sudden, two years ago, we get a different leadership that starts to work within Prop 47, but addressing the problems, which, by the way, car break-ins are not covered by Prop 47, but attending to the problem and not blaming Car 47, and all of a sudden, we had a reduction of 20% in two years. So there's just a lot to be unpacked there. The problem is sometimes we don't have the time to have those conversations, and unfortunately, that creates a vacuum. And then you have the, the you know, half truth and the lies that go on, like the ones that you know the police union, for instance, are putting out during this campaign now. That all makes sense to me. Uh, what would you say to LA voters or people who love people in LA who are listening and want to support you? What would be the top two things that you would know are like specific to L.A. that you would work on? You talked about the fact that L.A. incarcerates more people than everywhere else. And you talked about some other things. Uh, but what would be the two things that are L.A. specific that you want people to associate with your campaign? Look, I mean, starting with the priority of things, we have a crisis in our streets that is driven by mental health. Uh, substance abuse, and obviously the lack of affordability of housing. Now, I cannot do anything about the lack of affordability. I can certainly speak about it and and hopefully assist others in putting the spotlight on the issue, but it's not within the purview of the district attorney. But I can do a lot about the intersection between the criminal justice systems and substance abuse and mental health. And one of the things that I would be doing, uh, and we would be doing that immediately, is we would expand the way that we address mental health at the intersection with criminal justice to make sure that we start tapping in those $350 million, you know, about $70 million of that that had come to L.A. County from Prop 47 to create more services and start working with other partners around the county to create bandwidth through regional criminal justice slash mental health services that will be led by by mental health professionals, and in some communities going to be led by community-based organizations that are already operating there. And for those, we're going to provide the bandwidth by creating funding streams. Uh, in other places, it's going to be county mental health. Uh, in other places, would be other clinics that are out there. But that will be one of my first priorities, to take those three, 4,000 people that are spending nights in county jail every day they should be diverted, and the RAND Corporation just said that. The second thing that we're going to do immediately, because this really will have a tremendous impact uh, for future generations, stop prosecuting young people as adults. That is a horrendous practice. It's not supported by science. It doesn't make us any safer to the contrary, but we really are harming not only uh, the individual that is being prosecuted, but we're harming entire families and communities by continuing to send young people to prison as adults. That practice will stop immediately, and we will work with other partners in the space to make sure that we create diversion and we create other realities for our young people. So mental health, young people. The other thing that we're going to do immediately is we're going to stop spending the horrendous amount of money that we spend in prosecuting death penalty cases, which, by the way, one execution in the state of California costs around $350 million. It's insane, right? So the district attorney's office spends an inordinate amount of money and time prosecuting death penalty cases, which are a drain on the system across the board. Uh, we're going to stop doing that, and we're going to turn those resources in to provide more bandwidth to deal with mental health and, and young people and other parts of our work. And as we do these things and we begin to reduce the footprint 
uh, of the criminal justice system and sort of in the second phase of this, if you will, I'm going to be pushing really hard to start moving money into health and social services and away uh, from our jails and our incarceration. At the same time, uh, we're going to take a very aggressive look. We have a problem with law enforcement accountability in the county. Uh, 99.9% of our men and women in uniform go in every day and do a good job, and they certainly do a job that is lawful. But when we have the ones that do not, there has to be clear consequences to that. We have new legislation that passed recently. It's not the legislation that I supported originally. I supported Assemblywoman Weber's uh, initial legislation two years ago. It was, in fact, I was the only VA that supported her. Um, but we have one that passed, and, and I'm very committed to ensuring that we explore the boundaries of what that means for those that uh, in law enforcement that decide to uh, use excessive force and kill people, uh, members of our community. The other thing is that we're going to bring science into the office. You know, when I left San Francisco, we had 16 ongoing research projects at, at that moment. You know, I made the office a place where science and research were not only welcome, but we went out intentionally and brought it in. And we're going to make sure that L.A. County becomes a beacon for science and progress because, you know, unlike other fields like medicine or so many other uh, walks of life where, you know, technology has flourished and, and, and boom and impacted the practices, when it comes to the criminal justice system, we still, by and large, you know, we added computers here and there and all that, by and large, we, we have walked away from science. In fact, you know, a lot of those arguments against reform are, are a complete... Uh, denial than what science is telling us that we should do. So I'm going to make sure that LA becomes not only a beacon of hope, but it will it will become a leader in the space that we we would be leading the nation in, in this transformative way of looking at criminal justice. That not only we're reducing incarceration and we're creating safer communities, but we're doing so also more intelligently that we're bringing our practices into the 21st century. And then internally, you know, and this is something that I've known for quite some time because I have a lot of men and women that have reached out to me inside the office, but now there's a Witness LA uh, article that just came up, very lengthy, talking about the horrendous working conditions, especially for women and women of color inside the district attorney's office where they get sexually harassed and then when they report, then they get retaliated and they get demoted and they get put on a corner, if you will. Um, that cannot continue to go on, right? We cannot be having uh, the men and women inside the office uh, not feeling safe and, and having to endure retaliation and sexual harassment uh, because they view that that's the only way that they can they can promote we have to look at our environmental polluters. You know, we have industrial polluters in this county that are literally killing members of our community. We have seen fossil fuels in Baldwin Hills, and we see communities around Baldwin Hills where you have young people that are developing cancer that can be directly attributed to the fossil fuels industry. Or we look, you know, up in the northern part of the county when we had this, uh, you know, natural gas explosion and really almost a, a pathetic response from the DA's office where they half-hearted go and, and they, they file the case. They end up settling for very, uh, you know, the lowest count that they could, and then they don't even attend to to providing, uh, you know, uh, the ability for the community 
to be compensated for the harm that they had done, and yet they'll go out and prosecute some person from, uh, you know, going into a, re- a restaurant and walking out without paying, and they make they send that person for to jail for 120 days and, and make him pay restitution to the restaurant, but they don't make Southern California Gas Company pay restitution to the hundreds of people that were harmed uh, by the explosions. Or you look at a place like Catahate or, or Vernon, you know, that they have been impacted by environmental polluters, uh, but, you know, they happen to be poor communities and, and you know, we kind of, we give a wink and a nod and we move on. Or you look at, you know, cases like Ed Buck and, you know, Weinstein uh, that go and ignore when people of color are being abused or, or women are being abused by people that are, you know, deemed to be powerful and influential. And those things are the kind of things that really move me. And those are the kind of things that we're going to be attending to very aggressively if I were to become a district attorney. There we go. Well, thank you for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure and look forward to uh, staying connected. And hopefully we can can celebrate uh, in March the 3rd and moving over. But uh, the race has been a real pleasure. I really appreciate you. Well... That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.